Hi, I'm Charles Gossier, President and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. We're proud to sponsor the Coping with COVID-19 daily podcast series this month. Thanks, everyone, and stay strong. You're watching Coping with COVID-19 for Friday, April 24th. My guest today, Todd Littman, founder and executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. He's just published a new report titled Pandemic Resilient Community Planning, which as the title suggests, explores how we can plan communities that are resilient to economic, social, and environmental shocks. A very timely report. Todd, hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Haley. I think it's going to be worth starting off with a definition when we talk about resiliency that might mean different things to different people. But from a planning perspective, what does it mean to have a resilient or pandemic resilient community? Right. So there's quite a bit of literature on what constitutes resiliency. And usually in the past, it's focused on infrastructure resiliency. So how can you make sure that your uh, electric power won't fail and your water systems will work and uh, you'll be able to withstand storms in your community. So there's quite a bit of, of thinking about how to build stronger infrastructure and, and, and anticipate, for example, if one link in your water system or one roadway fails, how you're going to keep the system operating so you build in some redundancy. And that's very straightforward. If you're a civil engineer and you're interested in, in the infrastructure, um, you have a pretty good way of thinking about resiliency. But of course, um, uh, disasters and other shocks, other economic and environmental shocks um, present other types of risks. And what's really interesting about pandemics is that the threat is not to the infrastructure, the threat is to people. So building stronger bridges or better electrical systems, uh, more, more redundant uh, uh, utilities, does not address uh, uh, pandemic resilience. Um, but having a diversified transportation system, so if, for example, people are no longer uh, 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 using public transportation as much. They want alternatives to driving and, and taxis and public transportation. Then uh, we need to plan that in. We need some, uh, we need a more diverse transportation system to deal with concerns about, about uh, um, uh, infection, in, infection risks in public transportation. But what's really interesting is the, this pandemic experience has raised some other important concerns. Uh, a really important one is affordability. So for most people, the pandemic risk is not uh, about getting deathly ill. It's about losing their job, losing their income, and um, having to live with uh, several months of economic uncertainty. So it's the economic shock that is really the, the main concern, or it's one of the main concerns. Another issue that's come up very prominently in this, in the 
pandemic is uh, the concerns about homelessness. So uh, in the past, there certainly was a lot of legitimate concern about homelessness as uh, um, you, you could call it a, um, a, a, a human rights or, or, or concerns about disadvantaged people. Uh, it's, a, it's a social equity issue. But the pandemic has also reminded us that there are risks to everybody in the community if some people in your community are unhoused. So the, the infection risk becomes uh, a, an additional special concern or, or it raises the concern about homelessness and provides um, an additional reason for, for communities to make sure that, that everybody has a house. So those are, those are the issues, that's where we, we expand the definition of resiliency, of community resiliency, uh, when we're thinking about pandemics compared with other, um, with other types of disasters or other economic and environmental shocks. That's really interesting. To that point, I've heard this situation described as an economic crisis tacked on to a health one. And there's obviously been huge economic impact that's resulted from government measures to try and keep us healthy and safe. Is there a way to marry social and health priorities with economic priorities when we're planning to, for a pandemic? Absolutely. So a lot of these issues have been major concerns in the past, and the pandemic um, shocks, the, 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 the health and social and, uh, and, and economic shocks um, just make them that much uh, more evident. But for example, um, inaffordability has been a major concern, especially in, uh, among, let's say, uh, not only not only is it uh, for the very poorest population, but a lot of um, working class, you know, people are struggling to afford uh, their housing and transportation costs. Even you know, well before this pandemic, that was that that is for many households, it's a chronic problem. And um, so, a lot of my career. For the, a lot of my work for the last few years has been looking at how planning can support more affordable housing and transportation options. Um, that's going to become even more important now. Whether you use the term resilience or social equity or you're concerned uh, about economic development, say you're, uh, you know, you think about uh, in, in a city like Vancouver or here in Victoria, if a restaurant wants to expand, one of their biggest constraints is finding workers who are willing to live in a high cost of living community like ours. So there are many reasons that communities should be reforming their housing development policies and their transportation policies to support affordability. And that's going to become very evident. It is. It already has become evident. 
And uh, the longer the, the recession, you know, the current recession continues, the more important affordable housing and transportation are going to become. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout all my life and varying levels of school, we've done earthquake drills. And I've always been told that we're waiting for the big one. It's going to come. So earthquake preparedness is kind of being top of mind. Never have I ever gone through anything like a pandemic drill of that kind. But do you think that going through a pandemic like this will force individuals, households, and communities to rethink how they think about pandemics and how they prepare for these shocks that do happen? We don't know when, but they do happen. Well, certainly, although I personally think that's the wrong way to approach it, because as, as people often joke, or, or uh, my military friends often joke, that generals are always fighting the last war, that the, whatever the last disaster that occurred seems to be the one everybody starts preparing for. So over you know, my career, and I've, I've, I've worked on uh, disaster response management on a few projects. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, uh, 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 a couple decades ago, it was terrorist attacks and concerns about, you know, people were saying, oh, everybody's going to abandon cities because cities are so dangerous. And they'll point to the, the, the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks and then subsequent um, uh, uh, terrorist attacks in public transit systems and, and other things like that and, uh, frighten people. And then, of course, there were the, um, the problems with hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita and, and all the you know, and other ones and ice storms and on the East Coast and, you know, so and earthquakes, of course. You know, so so um, there there are often uh, these disasters. Uh, I should mention anybody disaster planning, disaster response planning is actually quite fun in a morbid way because um, just like my grandmother would have said, you want to hope for the best but prepare for the worst, right? Um, that's good good advice for everybody and. So part of disaster management planning is sitting around thinking, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen here? And, you know, you look through the history and you look at how many people died and say the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and the terrible things that happened. It, well, actually, the earthquake didn't kill most people. Most people died in the subsequent fires and and in, uh, there were, there were, it caused infection or it caused a, uh, uh, um, uh, infectious diseases and there were riots and the military came out and shot some people so you can you, you if if you're if you're involved in disaster management you you have to think you you study all the bad things that have happened and the mistakes people make and and you think about how you would deal with that so my point is um i think it would be a mistake for communities for cities and provincial governments or whatever, federal governments, to plan for another pandemic just like this one. The disaster, the next disaster we face is very likely not going to be just like the last one. Um, so it's, so the basic human intelligence 
is that we learn from the past problems, but we, you know, the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco or Hurricane Katrina or the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic and, and plan for a repeat of exactly that. We generalize it. We figure out what prepare for. And that's where I think, and, and the concept of resilience is saying, we're going to be prepared for whatever unexpected changes, what economists call shocks. Whatever the shock we're going to face, we should be prepared. So, for example, your household wants to be prepared with, you know, a store of food and a fire extinguisher and, you know, some basic household um, resiliency planning. Great. Uh, but also, you want to be thinking, what would happen, you know, how will we deal with it if we have to go, let's say, three or six or 12 months without much income? Are we prepared for that? Or are we prepared for our car breaking down or me becoming physically disabled and I can't drive or I can't walk very well? Um, these are all shocks that your household or your community could face. And so resiliency planning is about thinking these through. What can we do now to prepare for potential shocks? And that's where I think um, uh, we, we, we communities could be doing, households and communities could be doing a lot. And a lot of it is just simple. It's making sure, for example, that you live in a community where you don't need to drive everywhere. That is transformational in this, when you're facing these kind of problems. And similarly, that uh, if you did have a financial shock, you have some ways to save money. You know, that could be giving up your car or sh shifting to a smaller home or, or renting out uh, 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 part of your house or something like that. There are ways that most households can deal with these shocks. And there's some things we could be doing now to make that easier. What do you think? <laughs> well, there's a lot of really good information there. I'm so curious to get your thoughts on, for example, TransLink, so an important service provider, but hit with the economic challenges of losing $75 million a month. So could still operate, save for some of these costly measures that the company's going through. And sorry if the audio is cutting out, it sounds like the connection's maybe a bit weak. But that sounds like an interesting challenge because that diversity of our transportation system that you mentioned is very critical is further impacted by the cost issue. So when we look at how resilient we are, I mean, what's your sense of how resilient are we with these important infrastructure pieces? Sure. Well, um, and this is a lot of my research deals with exactly this. I think the starting point is to look at the transportation options and the transportation costs on basically a per capita basis. So um, it's really easy to focus on one component uh, and, and develop a, a, a big you know, uh, d debate, let's say, or, a big, or, or focus your analysis on, on one component. But I want to, I think for what we're talking about, 
it's important to step back and look at what we're trying to do and what what really matters. So let me let me put this into perspective. Um, there's a huge difference between living in an automobile dependent area and living in a multimodal area. If you live in an automobile dependent area, you basically you can't get out of your house or you can't go to any out of home destinations or activities without driving. So, you know, think of somebody who, who lives uh, a few kilometers from any stores, any, any commercial centers, and uh, their streets have maybe no sidewalks, or even if they have sidewalks, the roads are, are wide and busy, and so it's hard to get around by walking and bicycling. And, and there's a little public transit service. Okay, if you're in, in that situation, um, when there's a shock to your system, so either uh, as we have now, um, there's limited, uh, or people are, are, are asked to stay home most of the time, and, and um, uh, you're, you're discouraged from, tra from, sh from traveling in shared vehicles. Okay, if you are wealthy and physically able, and you own your own car, you'll do fine. So you can get around. But anybody who is either uh, physically constrained or doesn't have a driver's license or doesn't have a car or has a low income and maybe they can't afford their car payments or their, they can't afford insurance, they are, are in, a, in, a, in a highly constrained situation. They are, they are severely disadvantaged if they live in an automobile dependent area. Conversely, um, since we live in one of the walkable urban neighborhoods here in Victoria, our life has actually hardly changed. Uh, or I should say our, our, um, our, our ability to access our transportation costs and our transportation options have hardly changed because um, we happen to live in, a, you know, in one of these older traditional neighborhoods. So, and that has financial implications. Um, uh, it, people who live in automobile dependent areas typically spend about 20% of their income on transportation. People who live in very multimodal neighborhoods um, typically spend five to 10% of their household budget. So it's the, it's the ability, even if somebody loves driving and they're gonna own a car, the ability to say, um, right now, the next couple months, I need to save money, so I'm not gonna drive. I'm gonna park my car and, and hold the insurance on it. That is a huge benefit, a huge affordability benefit to a lot of people. That's not saying everybody needs to, needs to give up driving. But what I'm, what I'm, I, my research points out is that uh, living in an area that is not automobile dependent provides resilience. It provides physical access and economic resilience that, that, that is really the part of the basis of this. Um, so now we, having said that, we can ask, um, what are the implications of public transportation? You know, how important is our buses and 
uh, subways or SkyTrain or whatever uh, during a pandemic. Um, some people jump to the conclusion that public transportation is a huge uh, infectious disease risk. And so um, there have been some people that said, okay, well, this is the end of public transportation or this is the end of cities. But actually, if you look at the data, uh, that's not true. And in fact, I just uh, uh, today um, posted a new blog on the Planetism website. So this is a, a, the website for professional planners that looks at the actual risks of uh, transportation risks from uh, in, during a pandemic and how to reduce those risks. And one of the interesting things that, that the research shows is that um, there, there's actually higher rates of COVID-19 infections in automobile-dependent sprawled areas than in compact transit-oriented areas. And this is really surprising, but the, re the results are fairly consistent. And what, that, what uh, researchers suggest is that if you live in a, in a, in a compact transit-oriented neighborhood, so you live in, uh, say, around a SkyTrain sky station or in one of the old neighborhoods in Vancouver or here in Victoria, um, when the pandemic kicks in, you simply don't, you, you, you significantly reduce your trip making. So you might go from making 10 public transit trips a week, you know, you're commuting five days a week on public transit, to making two public transit trips a week. And the other four days of the week, you're walking to local stores or bicycling to local stores and you're working at home. So in the transit-oriented areas, there has been a huge reduction in total motor vehicle trips. Where people who live in, in more automobile-oriented sprawled areas, they're still making almost the same number of vehicle trips as they did before because they don't live within walking distance of, 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 uh, of shops and services. And they're probably going to a much wider range of destinations. So um, if you live in, in Surrey or Richmond and you're accustomed to driving everywhere, you probably go to, uh, to, to quite a few different destinations. When I go shopping, there are only two stores that we go to here because those are the stores within walking distance where, um, where people that have cars are gonna go to probably a half dozen. So what, and because driving seems safer, motorists are probably taking fewer precautions than people who are using public transportation. So um, if, if everybody only had one car and drove alone, it may, the, 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 the um, contagion might not be so severe, but most, Motorists are probably carrying a few passengers occasionally. They're picking up kids. They're taking their kids to visit friends. Um, they're 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 uh, picking up their uh, uh, they're they're taking their mother-in-law uh, to medical uh, uh, clinics or whatever. And so there probably are similar risks when somebody. Uh, 
carries a passenger in their car as when they use public transportation. That is, there's probably about the same um, uh, 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 being, uh, being in, a, in a constrained space and a similar number of touch surfaces. It's just that motorists probably make more of those trips. And so our motorists are more likely to be exposed compared with somebody that lives in a walkable neighborhood. So the research is pretty clear. Um, the, uh, um, there are many factors that affect our infection risks, our chance of, of being infected by, uh, by uh, this pandemic. And using public transit, even though it may be an exposure risk, it's, it's not the primary um, factor affecting pandemic spread. So anyway, getting back to the economics, um, I do think that it is very important to provide public transportation. That is a very basic service. So I do support transit agencies developing plans so they can maintain service in the future. I do recognize there's going to be a, a great reduction in transit ridership, just like there's a great reduction in, in car traffic now. So we do need to be responsive, but I, I see no uh, logical justification for significantly reducing public transit over the long term. In fact, for affordability's sake, I think we need to support more affordable travel modes, public transportation, and walking and bicycling. Does that, what do you think? Does that answer your, the question that you, you, you raised? I think so, yeah. And I appreciate the context because that's a, a really important piece of this and the affordability aspect too. I've seen people talking about the fact that we had an opioid crisis before this. We had a homelessness crisis before this. This is compounding some of those impacts, including the affordability crisis we were going through. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. I encourage everyone to go and read your report because there's so much great information in there. But for anyone who hasn't yet looked at it, what do you hope they take away from your report? How should people maybe start thinking differently or what should they maybe take away from the experience we're going through? Well, um, if nothing else, it is that uh, the, this pandemic or other disasters show that uh, these kind of events are actually a, a, a bundle of problems. It is not, the pandemic is not, the, the problems that result from the pandemic are not just a, an individual's risk of getting the disease. It is also um, the risk of their neighbors getting the disease and particularly disadvantaged groups. It is the economic uh, 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 shock and what that means to their communities. Um, and it, it's, um, uh, it, and, and then, um, uh, it's a, it's an opportunity to rethink how we want to lead our lives. So for example, um, the importance of having a, enough, a, a house that's nice enough that if you do have to spend, a few weeks locked away in your house that you have decent natural light and decent um, uh, 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 fresh air and and uh, enough space 
that everybody in your household can have a little privacy and that you, it is, what we're discovering, it is very important to have high-speed internet and other electronics. So, so it's, it's raising, it's a reminder that um, there's some good community, household design decisions and community design decisions that we can make to prepare for the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as, as uh, William Shakespeare said, or you could, you could you know, say the uncertainties of life. So um, affordability is a big part of it. Um, having a, a comfortable house is a big part of it. Having diverse transportation systems is a big part of it. And also um, building up those community relationships. So a big part of this is really about the value of living in a community and, and uh, uh, communicating good communication between your community leaders and the re residents, but also between people in the neighborhood. So you're, you're having a good relationship with your neighbors. All of those are important all the time, but they're particularly important if you're preparing for a disaster. So are we ready? Are you ready for the next <laughs> unpredictable shock to your household or to your community? Are you? That's a really good question. I can tell you that I've certainly made some buying decisions and decisions around what we spend, what we have in the house as a result of this. Um, made us rethink too, you know, we didn't have, we hadn't updated our earthquake preparedness kit in a long time, right? So did the shop, we have water, we thought through, you know, what do we do if we don't have heat for however long? Things that it's really a luxury to not have to think about that all the time, even though it should be top of mind. Um, so it's sure. been an so interesting have, process. The disaster kit is important. What about some of the other things? The ability to get, a, get around without a car or the ability to deal with a, 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 a financial crisis. Is that part of your disaster plan? For me, yes. We've also had on this show actually some financial planners too, that rule of thumb where you're supposed to have three to six months of your salary saved away. Most people, again, a bit of a luxury to be able to do that. A lot of people may be living paycheck to paycheck and can't. That's certainly something in our household we're making sure that we, we have that ready to go. Also because so many people who thought their jobs were secure and typically maybe would be fairly secure, have seen their job close, seen the company that they worked at close as a result of this unforeseen circumstance. Uh, sure, really so for many people it. it will be difficult. The good news is that um, we do live in a, I think in a, in a, in a, uh, in a compassionate and responsive society. And so I think um, even though right now it seems extremely stressful and uncertain, um, I think most people are going to be able to weather this, this, uh, this, this, the current disaster well enough. And actually I think a lot of people will learn some, will, will, will find many benefits. If nothing else, they'll appreciate um, the, the small things in life, like being able to go for a walk or a bike ride and, and hug their 
family and friends and, you know, little things in life will be much more appreciated. Um, so there's, a, there may, I think, uh, I hope that this is going to be for most people, ultimately a positive learning experience. So like my grandmother said, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. <laughs> Wise words. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Haley. That's Todd Lippman, founder and executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. And if you're interested in the report we were talking about, vtpi.org, you can go and find it there. Thanks again, Todd.